You're listening to a podcast from New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. The text that I have um, to preach to you today on Mother's Day is a passage of Scripture about guys killing people. Um, so, happy Mother's Day. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, this is just where we find ourselves in the Bible. Um, at our church, we, we, don't, we don't base what we preach on just the Hallmark calendar. We just love the Bible, and we go through the Bible verse by verse. And so we find ourselves in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12 today. I'm going to cover the first 12 verses, and it's a parable of Jesus talking about a vineyard. Um, parables are often misunderstood by people who are around Jesus. Um, there was a guy at my small group this week we were meeting, and um, he described the food that we were eating at small group being attacked like a pack of dogs on a three-legged cat. And I love the, the imagery of that, right? And I find myself saying those kinds of things because that's, that's how we learn to talk in Lincoln County. I went on a date with my wife and couldn't get my credit card to work the other day. And, and the cashier was like, just wait on it, just wait on it. And I got impatient and I keyed in my number on because they don't do it now because of COVID. And so I was like, I'll just do it myself. You want me to come behind the cash register? I'll take care of it. And so I keyed it in and it worked. And I said, see, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And my wife hangs her head in shame. And she's like, why do you talk like that? You're so embarrassing. And, um, and so, you know, it's not, I don't like who I am, but it's who I am. But um, but Pastor Jeremy, every time I say there's more than one way to skin a cat, he has his own saying. He says, there's more than one way to pluck a duck. And that's, you know, he says they used to say that in East Virginia, but um, I, he, just, he just likes to make fun of me. But, um, but when Jesus told these parables, he would use analogies and story, and, and, and it sometimes just went over the head of the people that, that he was ministering to and preaching to. And maybe some of the redneck sayings go over your head, but I don't want us to miss what's happening in this parable as Jesus speaks to the Sanhedrin. He's addressing primarily the 71 elders that rule over the nation of Israel that Pastor Jabes showed you last week. And so um, let, me, let me read the parable to you, and then I'll pray, and I'll do my best to exposit it and explain it. Uh, beginning at verse 1 in Mark 12, it says, He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and they, him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us in this time. We pray that you would be exalted in our hearts and, and in our church. Um, Lord, we especially lift up these saints of the Valley Campus to you in this time of transition. Um, God, I pray that you would help us uh, to transition well, that we would have unity in our church. And I want to pray against any sort of division. Um, Lord, we want to be humble servants and honor you with our lives. 
and, and obey you with the way that we live. And, and so, God, show us in the Scriptures today uh, what you have for us. Do work in our souls. And whatever situation or circumstance that each person here is facing, I pray that you would just sovereignly apply it to them. And, God, that they would be closer to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to kind of give you a, a little bit of a cast, set the plot, if you will, for this story. Now, the vineyard, um, I'll just give you, give you the answer, so if you want to take notes and kind of know who we're talking about, and I'll, I hope you'll see throughout the sermon why we can see who's who. Um, but a cast is helpful. Um, I saw Anna's going to be Cinderella. So like in a, in a, in a play, you've got a list of the cast. It's, it's helpful for us to know who's who. Now, the vineyard, the setting of this parable is the nation of Israel. Um, and let me just go through, number one, the landowner. Uh, the landowner, the man who uh, plants the vineyard and establishes it is God the Father. The tenants that we see in this parable are the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. Um, the servants in this parable that the landlord sends to the vineyard are the prophets of the Old Testament. And the beloved son, you could probably guess that one, of course, is Jesus Christ, the God the Son. And Jesus is illustrating the theme of rejection in this parable, ultimately that he will be rejected. But we see um, just two main things and then that it's all within God's plan. Number one, the rejection of God's servants. We'll also see the rejection of God's son. And then we'll see that nothing surprises uh, the landlord, God the Father, that all of it is within God's plan. And so let's look at the first one, the rejection of God's servants. Um, we see two characters, tenants and servants. Um, and my kids have gotten in the habit of gambling with one another, but not with money. Um, they'll, they'll play a game or something, and they'll say, if you lose, um, then you have to be my assistant. And what they mean by that is slave. They, they put a nicer term on it, but they, they literally will sell their lives to their sibling to, to risk something, right? And, um, and, and it's, it's gotten so crazy in my house that the other day, my youngest son, he's six years old, my 12-year-old was, was calling him peasant. Peasant, go get me something to drink. And he's got to do it because he lost some game to her. And... Um, and so this is kind of how we see this playing out, that the landlord has two roles, tenants and servants. Tenants, those that are supposed to be serving him but are not in his presence. Um, servants who are in his presence and are sent to the tenants to carry out the work of the master. Verse 1 gives us this setting, tells us this landlord, this God the Father, calls him a man who plants. He plants a vineyard and he put a fence around it. I want you to notice the description here. And he uh, dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And he leased it to tenants and he went into another country. And I want you to ask yourself, does this sound familiar? It should. It's at the beginning of your Bible, right? Um, in Genesis, God says, let there be light. And he creates the heavens and the earth in the beginning. Uh, we see that God is a creator God. And then he creates man, whom he names Adam, which in Hebrew means man. It's not a very eloquent name. Sorry if you know people named Adam, but um, it just means man. And he takes man, he takes Adam, and he places him in the garden. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to do what? To work it and keep it. You know what Adam was? He was a tenant. He was a servant. The garden was not his. We like to say that we have land or we own land, but ultimately God is described in the Old Testament as the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That means that ultimately everything belongs to God. This is his world. He holds everything. He's the ultimate landlord, right? 
Landlord, though, with a capital L. Landlord's, by the way, my favorite like English word that we use because I feel like it's the most archaic of words that we still use uh, modernly. Um, like, lo- break it down. The Lord of the land. Like, have to pay my rent this month to the Lord of the land. It just feels like Dungeons and Dragons type stuff. Um, but, but we still use it. And, and, but, but God, the Father, is, is the master of all things, the owner of all things. And so Adam never owned the garden. He was placed in it to be a tenant there. And the same is true of you. You don't own your house. You don't own your land. I don't care what the courthouse says. You don't own your stuff and your family. You're ultimately a steward of what God has graciously put in your possession. And you're called to be a good steward. And we should be grateful for the things that God's given us, right? The same with these tenants. The landlord gave them a a nice vineyard. He put a fence around it. He didn't have to do that, but he put a fence around it. He's like, I'm going to protect it and guard it. He built him a tower. I'm just not going to give you a little hut on this property. I'm going to build you this big tower so you can be safe and elevated. I'm going to dig a pit for you to have a wine press. You can pick the grapes and you can, you know, have a little wine tasting day and just kind of kick back and do what you please. He's been very gracious to these tenants, hasn't he? God the Father was very gracious with Israel. He showed them common grace like he shows to all of his creation today. Verse 2 says, When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. That's not how it's supposed to work, is it? The Lord of the land, they should be paying their rent to the Lord of the land. And Jesus is illustrating that the tenants of God, Israel, had abused and rejected the servants of God, who are the prophets. Let me give you one example, a guy known as the weeping prophet, Jeremiah. Jeremiah 20 tells us this story about him. He goes to He goes to the temple, and it says, Pasher, the priest, the son of Emmer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pasher beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. Could you imagine every time that that one of your pastors preached a sermon that kind of stepped on your toes spiritually and you didn't like what we had to say, that you beat us up and put us in chains? That's that's basically the history of Israel, that when God sent them a prophet to to rebuke them and correct them in love and chastisement of of a good heart of God the Father, that they beat up the messenger. Jesus details this in the parable. Verse 4, he continues, again, they sent him another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. Verse 5 says, so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. You may be asking, what's the point of all this? What's it teach us? Here's the principle. It teaches us that God is graciously patient with his creation. For most of us, our rebellion begins against our parents. This is fitting for Mother's Day, right? I remember Kathy Basham finding burnt CDs in my car that had cuss words all in them, and she chucked that CD out the window like a Frisbee. (laughs) Guess what I I did? I went back onto Napster and made another one. (laughs) Our rebellion begins there, doesn't it? Just in our uh, hellion depravity, we naturally rebel against the authority God's placed in our lives. But then the rebellion continues. We rebel against the good influences that God places in us, and some of them more extent than others, but I promise you, you've rebelled against God's servants 
your Sunday school teachers, the people that tried to lead you to Jesus, the people that invested in you to teach you the good story of Jesus, ultimately we've all rebelled against that. But thanks be to God, he's patient with us, amen? He's long-suffering. As we reject God, we reject his servants, we reject his church, every single one of us does this, but yet God is patient. We had an issue with my, my daughter recently, one of my daughters, and my wife, being the good mother that she is, says, we're going to go to the park and walk it out. And it was, it was almost 11 o'clock at night. I'm like, we're going to walk at the park in the middle of the night? People are going to think we're crazy. And she's like, they already think you're crazy, so we're just going to do it. So we just went and walked, and I was getting tired. I'm old and out of shape, and I was wanting to go to bed, and we just walked and walked and walked until she repented. God is long-suffering with you. What are you refusing to be obedient in? And God is just patiently waiting for you to submit to it. Don't find yourself religiously prideful or practically prideful in your life, refusing to do what God's commanded you. Jesus says in another conversation, actually the same conversation, but in Matthew's detail of it, in Matthew 23, he says to the Sanhedrin, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of you who, whom you will kill and crucify. Some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Jesus gives this detail that Zechariah, the next to last prophet of the Old Testament, was killed in the temple, was murdered in the place of worship by the religious leaders. And he also talks about Abel, by the way, he was the first man to die, like ever. The first death, the first physical death in history, Abel, the second son to Adam and Eve. These two martyrs show that death reigned from the first Adam to the second Adam, Jesus. And that first family, Adam and Eve, this tenant family that was given a, a land to keep and take care of, they would have a firstborn son, you know what his name was? Cain. And that firstborn son would be a killer, but the firstborn son of the good landlord, the father, would be killed to redeem us. Secondly, we see the rejection of God's Son. After the servants are rejected, ultimately it culminates with the rejection of the landlord's son. You know, I send my oldest son into places I don't want to go. My truck's right out here through this window. I don't know if everybody can see it, but I got an old man topper on my truck so I can camp in it. The bad thing about that is I also have old man knees, which means I don't want to crawl up in it. And we went fishing yesterday and some of the tackle slides all the way forward and I don't want to crawl up there to get it. So I say, Micah, get up in there, get, the, get that fishing tackle. And he gets up in there like a spider monkey and gets it out. But I wouldn't send him into someplace dangerous, right? That would make me a bad father. And so we look at this parable and we say, well, this father's crazy. This landlord's crazy. Why, would, why on earth would he send his son? Well, we get some insight to this because it was ultimately within the plan of the landlord all along. We look at this and say, this isn't the time to send your son. This is the time to call the police. This is the time to bring the centurions in and arrest those tenants and get them out of there. But verse 6 says, he still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. Their selfishness overtakes them. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the parable. I believe Jesus is looking the Sanhedrin in the eyes. He says this, knowing the plot is already in their minds 
for them to murder him on a cross, crucify him, and throw him out of their kingdom they've established. The ultimate treason isn't merely to reject God's people, but to reject God himself. And it always begins with rejecting God's people, but it always leads to treason against God himself. I saw a pastor tweet this week that people who abandon their faith family, that always happens before they abandon their faith. That no one just, just gives up on faith entirely, but instead they, they, they take a baby step toward it. And they say, well, I'm hurt by my church. Or I don't like what the people of God did to me, so I'm going to abandon them first, and I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And they take that step away. And when they reject God's servant, ultimately they find themselves in the place of rejecting God's son as well. It's dangerous territory. To reject the son is to reject the father. If y'all invite me over for dinner but say, your kids are wild, you ain't welcome, guess what, I ain't coming over for dinner. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you invite me over and say, I don't really like your wife that much, but you can come hang out with me, I ain't coming over. You, like, you, you get seven Bashams or you get none of them, right? <laughs> That's just, we are, we're a package deal. And, and this is how it is with Jesus. Is, who's his bride? The church. We accept the son, that means we accept the servants of the son. And here they reject the servants, but then ultimately they reject the son and they kill him as well. And this audaciousness that the landlord sends his son in the first place shows us the sovereignty of the landlord, that it's all within his plan. So point three is that it's all within God's plan. And this just blows our mind that, that this could happen and that God knew it would happen and God still yet went through this. The death of the son to give life to wicked tenants is not a story any of us could have conjured up on our own. We've written great plays and movies and written books, but we could never write a story as beautiful as the gospel. God's plan is greater. He is gracious to give land in the first place, this common grace given to all creation, that he's long-suffering and patient with his rebellious creation. He's patient with the sins of the tenants as they beat and kill his servants that he sent to preach good news to him. But how will the story end? Jesus literally asks the question in verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He gives the answer in real time and what happens in history. He says he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Israel would no longer remain as a people in a specific land, as an ethnicity, but rather God would remove that privilege from them and make them not a people united around a national border, but rather a people united around adoption. That God's making them into a family, not just a nation. That he would destroy the tenants, something Jesus predicts in Mark 13 called the Olivet Discourse, where he, he actually prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple itself. And God would begin to draw all nations rapidly. What you see come to fruition in the book of Acts and what we see in the future will come to fruition in Revelation 5 where it says that we will all gather around the throne with every tribe, nation, and tongue. That in the rejection, God is doing something greater. And you remember that triumphal entry as they celebrated Jesus coming in? We preached it at our church, I think just three or four weeks ago, something like that. And they came, and, and Jesus rides in on a donkey, fulfilling the Old Testament. You remember they sang a, a psalm. It's Psalm 118, and they sang Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in Hebrew meaning save us. Let me read the psalm to you. They sing verses 25 and 26 of Psalm 118. Save us, Hosanna, we pray. O oh Lord, 
Oh Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And they miss the next verse. They stop singing there. And the next verse sings of an atoning sacrifice that needed to be offered for them to actually be saved. For their salvation to happen, which is what they wanted, they had to have a sacrifice. And the next verse in the song says it. It says, the Lord is God and he has made us light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Tie up the sacrifice. Arrest the Messiah. Kill and crucify him so that we can be saved. Just like the parable, they totally miss this. It goes right over their heads, and they sing this to Jesus, but they stop short of acknowledging the full truth of it all. And Jesus, in Mark 12, so beautifully brings them right back to the song that they sang in unison just a few days before. In Mark 12, 10, he says, have you not read the scripture? And I just have to believe Jesus is a little bit sarcastic as he asks this question. Because he remembers riding in on the donkey, how embarrassing that was to ride a donkey. He remembers coming into town and everyone waving palm branches and they lay their coats on the ground before him. He remembers the song that they were singing as they shout out Hosanna. And he says, have you not read that song? You not know the lyrics to that song you were singing? And Jesus, instead of quoting what they sang, he quotes a few verses before it. And he quotes it in Mark 12, 10. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Let me read the actual from, from Jesus' redback hymnal to you. Psalm 118, he's reading 22 and 23. And he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And the next verse, right before the Hosanna, it says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I don't know about y'all, but I used to learn scripture by singing it when I was a kid. Amen. Anybody else do that? I'm the only one. All right, that's cool. But I, I learned Psalm 118.24. We had a song, this is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. Some of y'all know. I see some nodding. And we, like, so my whole life, I've taken that song to mean, like, when I wake up in the morning and I don't want to go to work, I just make a cup of coffee and I say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let me rejoice and be glad in it. And it just puts me in a better mood. And Jesus here just shatters that. That's not the purpose of that verse. Jesus is saying the purpose of that verse, the day that the Lord has made this day, the day that the Lord has made was the day that the chief cornerstone would be rejected. Makes it a little darker, right, when you're making your coffee, trying to start your day real glorious. But it says, let us rejoice and be glad in it, that the ultimate rejection of the Messiah, the murder of your Savior, was something that the Lord had planned all along. And I, I envision as Jesus brings this psalm to light in front of them, it just reminds me of like modern movies, how you'll get to the end of the movie, and really brilliant screenwriters do this well. They always bring in a majestic score of music at the end. Saul does this, you know, the really gruesome horror movies. I'm not necessarily condoning those movies, but let's just pretend that I've watched them and they always have amazing endings, right? And in those movies, they always go back through the sequence of events that you've already seen, you've already watched the whole thing unfold, but it didn't click in your mind until they play the music and they piece all the puzzles together. And you're like, oh, that's what was happening. And as Jesus reads the Old Testament, 
And as he tells this parable, I just have to think that there's like some Jewish orchestra that strikes up and, and they're starting to piece together what's actually happening as he preaches this because guess what? This wasn't the first time this story had been told. The story was first told by a prophet who not in biblical history, but in secular history by historical accounts was murdered by the Jews. A prophet named Isaiah who recorded the exact same parable. I want you to listen how striking these similarities are out of Isaiah 5. And I'll finish by reading this to you. Isaiah writes, 400 years before Jesus would walk, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. You hearing the similarities? He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. God is saying, you choose between the landlord himself or the land. You, you have that choice. Verse 4 says, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I had not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of of Israel. If there is any doubt as to what Jesus is saying, the scripture gives us clearly what the vineyard is. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. 400 years before Jesus would be crucified. As we look at this, what this reminds us is that God's plan unfolded in exactly how the landlord wanted it to unfold. That the sinful actions of men did nothing to thwart the ultimate plan of God. And you think you've done something that would make you unacceptable in his eyes? You think you've committed some sin that, that, he, that just caught him by surprise? Or do you think the sin you'll commit this week will catch him by surprise? It won't. He's a gracious and long-suffering Lord. And he bids you to be obedient to him, whether you like it or not. So I want you to ask yourself, what's holding you back from that obedience? Or maybe what have you prioritized above that obedience? Because obedience to him has to be more important than the things he's given us to steward. It just does. Obedience to him has to come before our families. Obedience to him has to come before our careers. Obedience to him has to come before the possessions that we have. Obedience to him has to be first and foremost because he is the Lord of the land, amen? That means he's the Lord of everything I've got, my life, my breath. It all belongs to him, and so we yield it to him in worship. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Make sure to check out past sermons on the app.